0: Welcome to another episode of the Afikra Book Club podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on the series, we have Aisha Abdel-Gawad, who is the author of the novel Between Two Moons. In 2015, she won the Pushcart Prize for her short story, Waking Luna. And currently, she is a high school English teacher. I love English teachers, so I'm excited to have you on the series. Aisha, thanks so much. Thank you
1: for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Would you say
0: teacher is the sort of first um, noun in the way you think of who you are as like a profession?
1: Well, I love that question because I think it's impossible to be a high school teacher without it being the first noun. And that's a, that's something I yeah. struggle with, right? I, I want to be a writer. I, I want to dedicate more of myself to writing, but I also love being a teacher and being a teacher requires so much of me that it's it's a huge part of my identity for better or worse.
0: Yeah. Do you think of it as a, as a noun or as a verb? Do you feel like you teach or you are a teacher?
1: Both. I mean, I do think of it in some ways as a noun. It's like, I don't know if there's, if every profession is like this, where it just like, it, it is such a huge part. It feels like one of my core identities, like a part of, of who I am and how I engage in the world. Um, but then also it's a verb. And sometimes I have to be careful. Like there's some moments where I have to turn it off. Like even learning how to talk about this book, I sometimes go into like teacher mode. And then I realize, wait, 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 that's not what we're doing here. I'm, I'm, I'm my writer self right now. Um, so I find it sometimes even almost a difficult thing um, to, turn, to turn off.
0: Yeah. When you were a kid, um, if I was speaking to like the 15 year old Aisha, Um, and I told her, oh, you know, in 2023, you are going to be a very successful teacher. Um, and you will have been doing that for 15 years, teaching at various levels. Um, and also you're going to be a very successful writer. Would she, would the uh, excitement increase as that sentence went on or decrease? (laughs) Like, be like, what are you talking about? I'm a writer.
1: I think I, I probably would have been excited. Um, I've always loved writing when I was a kid, but I didn't. It's like I, it never occurred to me that it could be a profession, even though, yeah. like, what did I think all those the authors of all the books that I was reading were doing? But it honestly didn't occur to me until like after I graduated college and I met my my actually my now husband who was in an MFA program. And mm-hmm. I was like, what's an MFA? And he was like, oh, it's this program you can do to be a a writer. And I was like, that's a thing. And it just never occurred to me that this thing I'd love to do and I had been doing kind of on the side my whole life could be a a path that I could seriously pursue. I don't know if that's like the child of immigrants. Like I just like I had this focus that I needed to be to do something sort of practical. Um, But it didn't occur to me till late in the game that I could actually try to be a writer.
0: Yeah. So uh recently I had somebody on um uh who uh, Hassan who wrote his a book of short stories called Dearborn. And we were talking about, you know, Dearborn being this sort of capital of Arab America post-9 eleven. Um and I was at, I've always heard that growing up, you know, like oh Dearborn is this place with like has this Arabic on the street signs and um and then when I moved to Brooklyn, I realized that, like, Bay Ridge is, is also that. Um, so for the many listeners who are listening to this right now who don't know anything about Bay Ridge and also may not know that your book is set in Bay Ridge, can you just give a brief introduction about what is special about that neighborhood and that part of New York City?
1: Sure. Bay Ridge is... In, like Dearborn, it's like one of the largest Arab American uh, communities in the United States. Um, but I'd say one thing that makes it different, there are some, some Arabs who've been in Brooklyn for a very, very, very long time. Um, but, but a lot of the immigrant population in Bay Ridge are more recent immigrants, um, which is a is sometimes a difference from kind of Dearborn in the Detroit area. Um, and I would say, maybe a little bit less established in terms of socioeconomic status, um, immigration status, right? So people who are uh, arriving and trying to build a life um, without so much of a kind of generations, right, um, behind them. Um, And Bay Ridge used to be, um, and still is, there's kind of long ties to the Irish and Italian American communities. Um, It's right next to Sunset Park, which has huge latinx asian communities um so it's a super diverse area um but one thing i love about it is this this feeling um that there's arabs from everywhere right and everyone's trying to get by um and i think there's a real sense of of community there in in helping each other kind of try to make it in Brooklyn yeah. which isn't always the easiest place to make it
0: yeah um okay let's talk about the book just briefly let's give a sort of a brief synopsis of this book so if you're speaking to a, a you know somebody on the subway um, who's like oh that's so cool I see your name on this book that I um, that you're holding what would you tell them that this book is about so it's called between two moons what would? You say that this novel is about
1: I would say in many ways it's a classic coming of age story right? it focuses on these two girls, teenagers um in this this family unit in Bay Ridge. their parents are immigrants from Egypt, and they've just graduated from high school and um, as a high school teacher myself, I love that feeling, right? They're on the precipice of something and they just believe something huge is just right around the corner. They're about to become adults. Um, and their sort of dreams for this glorious summer post high school are quickly dashed, um, by a couple of things. Uh, one is, uh, there's a police, a law enforcement raid on a local Arab business. And which spooks everyone. And uh, second, they get they find out fairly early on in the book that their brother, their older brother Sammy, is coming home from prison. And so I really think of it as uh, this classic teenage girl coming of age story uh, that's intersecting with um, post nine eleven reality, right? And really focusing on. Uh, the surveillance of Arabs and Muslims post 9-11. So what is it like to be a teenager and to grow up under that intense surveillance?
0: Is that something that you felt um, intensely while you were working as a social, you know, social services um, professional in, in Bay Ridge? Did you feel that sense of surveillance that that was actually impacted daily life there?
1: Yes. Um, when I was in Bay Ridge in twenty ten, it was kind of perhaps the peak of the what's now been deemed an illegal NYPD surveillance program of Arab and Muslim communities, but we didn't know it yet. And um, the AP broke the story of that in twenty twelve, so two years later. And I would say there was a creeping feeling of paranoia, a feeling that people had to watch what they say. Um Really, anywhere right in certainly in um I worked at the Arab American Association of New York, so certainly in that building, in the mosque, right um in the restaurants, right, really, anywhere where you were, and there was also a feeling of um being kind of wary of strangers, there's a lot of strangers in barriers there's a lot of new immigrants coming all the time, so there was this feeling of kind of trying to suss people out um and figure out who people were and who was safe and we would make jokes about it sometimes like oh are you the are you a spy are you an informant like or we would say something maybe a kind of an off-color joke and then say oh just kidding and kind of qualifying what we were saying and it was all sort of in jest but it was like speaking
0: like speaking into the ashtray like oh this is a joke
1: yeah right or like you know talking on the phone right or Mm -hmm. looking at the phone on the table let's say you're sitting with your friends around a table And your phone sitting next to you it's kind of early in the days of of Mm -hmm. smartphones um and sometimes we would look at our phones just kidding haha um and it felt sort of ridiculous at the time but it was it was real you know it was happening um there was a, a truly remarkable uh level of surveillance of arabs and muslim communities all over New York, even the NYPD even went beyond its jurisdiction in those five boroughs, um, but especially in communities like Bay Ridge.
0: I had no idea uh, uh, that this was happening. I don't know about this story that broke in 2012. So it was that the NYPD was surveilling Arab American communities across the board, basically?
1: Yes, so it was basically that the NYPD had um, all these creepy sort of euphemistic names to like a a demographics unit. And um, it invested a lot of money and time in um, cultivating informants. Um, Sometimes those informants from within the community, um, usually under some form of duress, right? People who were in trouble with the law um, and would cut deals. undercover police officers um and they would and then of course like other forms of kind of um technology right um to surveil communities um and really it was uh this idea of latent terrorism so there's extremism in these communities and it may not have hatched, right? It may not be uh, manifest yet, but it's it's in us. It's this idea that we were all, um, we had terrorist ideas, right? Violent, extremist, anti-American ideas just in us innately. And it was waiting to come out and they needed to catch it before it did. So it would be um, surveillance guilty, Like of... guilty by birth, basically. Exactly, exactly. Um, so these reports would detail- the most, minute, uh, the most minute details, like let's say you walk into a shawarma stand and it would say how many chairs and tables are in there, um, what television station is playing, If there's a TV on the corner, and you were kind of like damned if you do and damned if you don't. It was suspicious if any business played Al Jazeera. That was like a red flag. But then I was reading these reports. This, uh, a lot of these reports were published by the Associated Press. And then it was also suspicious if you weren't playing Al Jazeera. Because then it was like, well, what are you trying to hide? Are you afraid? And it's, it's ridiculous. You laugh, right? It's ridiculous. It's but absurd. these reports, they're so absurd. It's like reading Kafka, except they were real NYPD documents.
0: Yeah. How So when you think about writing this this novel... Would it be possible to write the, write a novel about post 9-11 uh, Bay Ridge or Arab America um, without being about that as well?
1: I think so. I think so. Um, and I think this this uh, surveillance is part of a project of, of fear, right? And it's to make Arabs and Muslims be quiet and behave. Right. Um, because there's this feeling, um, that you could be accused of anything. And we've watched, right. There's so many stories of people whose lives have been ruined. Um, and I think it was a massive project of, of to silence us and to make us afraid. And unfortunately, I think in a lot of ways it, it worked, right. It's fairly successful. Um, and of course, this isn't, This isn't that unique to Arabs and Muslims, right? There's plenty of other marginalized communities in the United States who have faced similar tactics for centuries, decades, right? A lot longer. Yeah. Um, I just think it sort of took a different shape um, with us post 9-11.
0: When did you start writing this? And how (laughs) how did you manage to write this while teaching? Please walk me through what superpowers you possess to be able to have pulled this off. Like some people have a hard time like writing letters to their, like uh, writing texts to their friends while teaching. How did you like figure out a way to write a novel?
1: Uh, Tricky. It was tricky. I mean, this part of why it took me, it took me like 11 years. Um, So and part of that was I started it when I was really young and I had no idea what I was doing and I was figuring it out. Um, But then when I graduated from my MFA program, I started teaching high school and as you know, that really slowed me down. Um, and I think especially because I also love teaching high school, right? So I love what I do and I invest a lot of myself and my time into it. Um, really, I I have to, I wake up really early. Um, I wake up, so I teachers generally wake up very early. Um, I wake up probably at around four when I'm working on anything and I try to work for a couple of hours. Um, and I find that's the only way. If I try to do anything when I get home, I'm too distracted by the school day. Like, what, what's going on? It's a certain kid. Am I worried about a kid in the class, right? And I've got yeah. all of that going on in my head. And then, of course, I have my own actual children. Um, so that's, that's really the only way. But I know it's, I'm glad you understand that some people are like, oh, it must be so great. You can write in the summers. <laughs> I'm so brain dead by the time the summer comes around, you know, yeah. it's, it's tough.
0: So, these, the two protagonists, um, this is not, a, you know, this is not based on a true story, although it's uh, based in the real world. Um, are the two protagonists based on any specific people? Was there an inspiration for their stories?
1: You know, I, when I first started working on this book, I didn't know I was writing a novel, um, but I was writing these stories about these two girls. And at first, they were friends. And I kept writing these stories about their adventures, their antics, but it was really always about their closeness, their their sort of intimacy that they shared. Um, And then eventually they became sisters and twins. I kind of kept pushing them closer together. And I think that maybe the inspiration for that was I don't actually have any sisters of my own, uh, but I have been blessed with some pretty extraordinary female friendships and I think that have been a lifeline for me. And I think are a lifeline for basically every woman I know, right? It's a way of surviving the world. Um, and so that I think was kind of the original impetus of the book is how do women rely on each other as a way to survive and perhaps even try to thrive in a world, um, that is very dangerous for women.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, I was like listening to an interview that you gave um, about the book, and you were talking about um, the, the title, right, um, as a reference to Ramadan. And, I was, and you were discussing how, you know, obviously it's such a, it's a holy time, it's a sacred time, um, it's a very significant time of year. And I was, as you were talking about, I was reflecting on what Ramadan must mean to immigrant families, that it doesn't mean to families, uh, in particular kids, teenagers, that it may not mean to teenagers growing up in, in Egypt, for example, since you, you have Egyptian family. Um, what do you think the difference is? What do you think, um, like what does the significance of Ramadan hold for two teen- teenage girls based in Brooklyn that it might not hold um, for two teenage girls based in Alexandria?
1: You know, I I've only spent one Ramadan in Egypt. Um and I was amazed. It was a delight for me. I was like, "Oh my gosh, everybody's doing this thing, right? It was just like Ramadan all around and I had never experienced that before." For me, uh, Ramadan can be a fairly like lonely or alienating experience. Um you know, you go to school if you're a student and there's Maybe it depends on the school you go to, right? The community you live in. There's a few others and you can kind of give each other the nod, like, hey. Um, but otherwise you're, you're on your own, right? And everyone asks the same set of questions every year and nothing stops for you, right? Sports practices don't stop for teenagers. Exams don't stop, right? Nothing stops. Um, and so I find that in the US, I think there's this like special need to, like create community right to kind of get through Ramadan so it doesn't feel so lonely yeah. um but I also think that there's perhaps a little bit of a sense of sense of accomplishment right for like American Muslims um because we we are sort of like the odd ones out doing this thing so I wonder if for me I sometimes feel like a sense of pride um and I think I felt that way too like when I was in college, right, and I would, like, finish successful Ramadan, I would feel, like, a sense of pride um, knowing I had done it when the vast majority of my peers were not participating in this. So I I don't know if everyone feels that way, but I kind of wonder if there's this, like, we're all in cahoots together, we're all in solidarity, you know, it's, like, a challenge accepted kind of thing.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in northern Virginia in, like, the suburbs of D.C.
0: Mm, Yeah, which has a pretty... I think it has a pretty big Arab American population, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Lots of Arabs, lots of Muslims. I certainly wasn't, wasn't alone. Um, but I went to a massive public high school, um, with lots of people from all over. So, um, it, it definitely wasn't the type of thing when I was in high school. I think this is different now. I think they actually take, um, I think they have Eid off. Um, but when yeah. I was in, in school growing up, that was not a holiday. It was not mentioned. No one would ever even talk about Ramadan um, in terms of like the school or the teachers. Yeah, um, It was just this kind of like thing that we did privately in our in our home.
0: So could you imagine this book being included in in a, like a high school curriculum? Is that like when you're writing it, writing a book like this, since you have both vantage points, um, are you thinking of a specific reader, a specific grade level? Are you, a, are, like, is that how you're tapping into this? Thinking, oh, this would, this book will help uh, young readers digest these types of ideas and these types of con- uh, concepts um, and expose them to this style of writing and this type of community. Do you think of it from the perspective of an, as, of an educator? You
1: know what, I I don't because I find that I really needed to separate when I work on the book. I need to put teaching out of my head. Um, yeah. I I read differently. I think differently when I'm thinking as a teacher. And I really needed to write this book the way that I felt it needed to be written, for me as an individual, as an intellectual, as a person with political ideas, right? That mm-hmm. I don't necessarily always bring into a classroom with me. Um, and I think I wrote it primarily thinking of an audience of of adults, um, I certainly thought about uh, a wish or a hope that other Arabs and Muslims um, would would read it and feel sort of seen or, or a moment of resonance or recognition, especially Arab or Muslim women. Um, it's only after it's out, it's published, and I'm sort of talking about it, that people have asked me, oh, do you think, you know, this could work? And I do. I do think the book actually could work for an older audience of high school of high school readers. Um, not that I would ever attempt it; that'd be a nightmare to teach my own book.
0: <laughs> it's also like the toughest critics ever: your current students.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no interest in that. Someone yeah. else could tackle it, sure.
0: Yeah, how does it feel to be to have a, have the book read by the actual community? I'm sure you get messages from people in Bay Ridge, what has the response been like?
1: Yeah, those are some of my favorite messages to get. Um, You know, like strangers, I've heard from some folks I don't know at all um, who either live in Bay Ridge or used to live in Bay Ridge or live near Bay Ridge. I just heard from someone in Bensonhurst, um, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn that's even harder to get to than Bay Ridge. Mm. Bay Ridge is at the end of a subway line. um, So it's sort of isolated in that way. and so when people write and say that they they felt like it was like um uh it felt accurate, right like yeah. an authentic portrait of their neighborhood or of their experiences, right that's like thrilling to me. that's really like what more could i could I want than that?
0: yeah, it's funny, like um just because we just did the the uh the the dearborn um the Dearborn episode. Neighborhoods don't always get shine, you're right. So, like, there's this monolithic Arab America title, as if it's one, as if it's one thing, um, and that everyone sort of seems to have the exact same experience, and that Arab Americans in California are the same as the Arab Americans in Oklahoma, and the Arab Americans in Oklahoma that came in the 1920s are the same ones that came in the 2020s. Um, do you feel like the one, the community that you grew up in in Northern Virginia? was similar or do you did you feel like you had to walk into the the bay ridge community with humility and like i don't act. this is so different this is a a completely different community and completely different set of values and this is is this is new to me
1: completely different right and that's um i definitely had to I, i i still feel like a like a a guest, right. I'm a visitor. I'm not of Bay Ridge. Um, although I have a huge amount of affection for Bay Ridge, um, you know, and even also because I'm, I'm not from New York, I'm not from Brooklyn. I didn't grow up in the city. Right. And that's, that changes how you, how you move through the world. Um, I'm also, you know, lived in New York city for a long time, but I was a visitor to New York city.
0: Um,
1: so I absolutely, um, and I, you know, it, Bay Ridge is sort of concentrated. I grew up in these sort of diffuse suburbs, right? With lots of traffic and cars and um, Bay Ridge, once you're there, right? Once you get off that R train at the last stop and you walk or you take the bus as deep as you need to go into Bay Ridge, it feels sort of like this, its own little world that you've entered. Um And so I definitely needed to learn my way through the community.
0: Yeah. Did you ever feel like you needed permission to write something like this? I mean, you're dealing with heavy topics, um, both topics that the the two uh, young women are dealing with internally, but also topics about the community itself. Um, like, did you feel like you needed some permission, um, explicit permission to, to, to write and be a, an ambassador?
1: I did struggle with feelings of that sometimes. Um right? Not being an Arab from, from Bay Ridge. Um, but ultimately I think writers sort of need, sometimes you need to give yourself the permission to do things like that as a writer. Um, and I think as long as I try to pour as much of myself into this community and this place and building a world and also being clear that it's, it's fiction, right? It's, um, it's giving myself the freedom to, to deviate, right? From reality when needed, um, I think is, is essential as a fiction writer, um, and trying to capture as much of an authentic experience as I can while also not being bound by facts all the time, um, Mm -hmm. is, is a balance. I think that every fiction writer needs to navigate
0: Okay, I'm going to ask you a very tropey a tropey question, but I have to. Sure. Are you more Amira or Lena? They have very different personalities. They're struggling with different things. Um. Who do you like more? Be honest. Who do you I want to spend more time with?
1: I don't know if I can answer who I like more. I love them both. Uh, I think of them so much as it as a as a unit, right? Um. But I'll answer your first. Is it, like a, is, it like a,
0: is it a fight club situation where they're actually both the same person and they kind of have different personalities?
1: I mean, I do think they they need each other, right? Um, yeah. To navigate the world. I'm definitely more of an Amira. Um, so for right? our
0: listeners, what does that actually mean? Who are these so, twins and like what what are their, the yin and yang parts of their personalities?
1: So Amira is the, she's the primary narrator of the book. Um, and she is um introverted. Um, some might label her a good girl. I don't think she would embrace that label. Um, and I think that's kind of a flattening of her. But on the surface, she tends to follow more rules than her sister. Um on the surface, she listens to their parents more, although I think she rebels in lots of other ways that that they don't always see. But um, she's introverted and shy. She's awkward around boys. She doesn't really have a lot of confidence. Um, and then her twin, Lena is um, very gregarious, very outgoing, um, on the surface much more rebellious, um, and seems really, really confident, right? And then I think as you get to know them, like for example, you get to know Amira and you think, oh, she's perhaps a little bit more of a, a rebel than than I thought. And then with Lena, like maybe this confidence is a little bit of a facade sometimes.
0: Yeah, you know, so um, when you were living in, in, in Bay Ridge, were there specific acts, um, you know, like there's uh vandalism of, of the mosque and are you drawing on specific examples? Are you tapping into specific moments that you're like, oh my God, emotionally, this is how I felt or this is how my students were feeling at the time. i as best as any one person can empathize. Um, or were you sort of drawing on your own personal history?
1: Not necessarily in Bay Ridge itself, yeah. but I was absolutely thinking about events that were happening across the country Yeah, in that time, right? Let's say in that first decade. Post 9-11, I'm thinking about specific legal cases, right? So um, Arabs and Muslims, not just Arabs, right? Who were accused of various amorphous charges. Some of them actually not even ever charged, right? But arrested um, and held, right? Sometimes um, indefinitely um, with a pretty astonishing suspension of what I think I had used to think when I was a child are essential rights, right? Civil rights as Americans. Um, and one of the things we saw, uh, right after 9-11, I think the Patriot Act was, was ratified after like two, three weeks after 9 right? Crazy speed, um, is a, just an erasure of, uh, due process, habeas corpus, right? These kind of like essential things that we grow up thinking as American citizens, um, we have these rights. Whereas, in fact, we learned we don't, right? They can be taken at any time. So I was definitely inspired by specific cases, um, but also battles over mosques. Absolutely. I followed those really carefully. Of course, there's the example of the so-called Ground Zero mosque, um, but there were lots of other right places um there was an example in Tennessee right all over the country where mosques became flashpoints yeah um and were uh targets of violence and vandalism
0: yeah it's you know it's 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 funny every now and then i like think back to that um the first few years after 911 um i moved to the us to go to university in 2003 um so two years right after two years after September 11th. And thinking back to the the rhetoric, it's like a fever dream. It's, mm. it's hard for me to even think back to Freedom Fries and the Patriot Act and just yeah. like the absurdity, the violent absurdity of it, you know? um, Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's- and
1: 2003, like what a time, right? We're thinking about the beginning of the iraq exactly and now it's like that it does feel like a fever dream because it's really not that long ago but the way people talk about iraq now it's like uh oh yeah remember when we invaded iraq and everyone lied about it and like now we know it's a lie but like oops and um and now those same Right, the same people who are responsible that are like now labeled as the good Republicans, right, in this time that we're living in, right, yeah. the sort of moderate, reasonable, kindly um, Republicans, and it just blows my mind. I'm thinking, well, have we, f- have we forgotten? Because Iraq surely hasn't forgotten. Yeah. Um, it's it feels like this weird amnesia actually now. Um, yeah. right, it, as if uh the the war on terror is over, folks. Um nothing to see here after two decades of devastation um it's like kind of like whiplash
0: it is it really is um yeah it's um it's one of those things that i feel like i will have to explain to my grandkids um and they'll like find some version of wikipedia whatever in the future in 50 years um and they'll be like what happened (laughs) wait what yes you know
1: it's crazy yes. to think about. Yeah. It's just a, it was a a, a wild time, but also like a, it's not, it's not over, right? If you think about everything as setting a sort of a precedent, right? Of what's yeah. been, of what's been normalized. I even think about that. Some people ask me, well, the particular NYPD unit and program has been disbanded. Um, and so it's, it's over, right? Thinking, well, No, right. If anything, we've, we've only become, think about the leaps and bounds we've made in terms of technology, right? In terms of surveillance technology Mm -hmm. between 2010, let's say, and today. I think we would be very naive to think that, uh, the certain foundation, right? Hadn't been built, right? That now you can, you can build off of, um, to target particular communities who are deemed a threat.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I want to ask you, um, I'm going to ask you two uh, questions that I didn't tell you about beforehand. Um okay. So the first one is, if you were to give advice to a want-to-be first-time novelist who is sort of looking down the barrel of what that looks like and is thinking to themselves, I can't do this. It's this ridiculous. Everybody wants to write a novel. Um, maybe my aspirations are absurd. Um, how, you know, I have a day job. I'm not a like writer, writer. Um, what advice would you give to this person?
1: Well, good question. I feel like it would almost be like the advice I would give to myself. I would say, first of all, there's always a million excuses why you shouldn't write and writing is, a, is a, in many ways a ridiculous and ridiculously impractical endeavor. Um, but I would say sometimes it can be really terrifying, this idea of sitting down and say, I'm going to write a novel. Maybe don't start there. Um, for me, I, I, not all writers do this, but for me, I start with characters, right? So do I have a, a character or a couple of characters who just won't leave me alone? And I just try to develop them and follow them without really worrying so much about plot, right? Like with the larger ideas, um, and then I can go back, right? Once I've got a sense of like who are my people and why why should I be invested in them, then I can go back and think, okay, well, where do, where do I want where do I want them to take rule? right? And then I can kind of um, try to figure out why. Uh, But I think sometimes when you you talk about looking down the barrel can be really overwhelming, uh, the scale and scope of a novel. Um, But for me, it always starts with character.
0: So when you say start with character, I'm so curious about this idea. I'm not a writer. I never studied writing, Um, but I love a good story. Um, What does it look like for you to, like, ostensibly sit with a character? Like when, when people say that, like I tried to sit with the character and figure out who this person was, are you like writing notes to yourself? Like, oh, this is the type of person who has, um, this is the type of person who, um, wants to present themselves as like a, a goody two-shoe, but deep down inside it's because they fear, you know, rebellion, like, like literally, like how, how do you do it? Like, what do you, do? <laughs> what do? You do?
1: Sure. So for me, what I do is I have to do that in the process of writing. So um, let's say I sit down and I've got these two characters. Like, let's say, for example, when I first started kind of inventing and developing Amira and Lena. Yeah. um, And I have this idea, they're sitting outside of a basketball court. Go. Right. Like, and I have to write it in scene. So I'm not writing notes like this is what they would do. I'm writing what they are doing. So what do they do? when they see this group of boys playing basketball? Um, what kind of music are they listening to? How do they sit on the bench? What do they say to each other? Who's the first one to break the silence, right? Um, and so I sort of have to develop them as, as they're doing something um, in a scene. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's how I write. I start with a lot of fragments of scenes. And that's how I figure out who these people are and what motivates them and what they would do in any given moment.
0: Do you have like a single source of truth? So like, I love this exercise. So you're like, all right, they're sitting on the bleachers in front of a bas- uh, in front of a group of boys playing basketball, right? And you have a sense, you're like, okay, these are teenage twin uh, girls. And one of them is kind of like in a simplistic way, like the rambunctious rebellious one. And the other one is sort of a little more of the, the, uh, the good girl type character, um, kind of, I'm not sure. So this is how they would act. And then is it possible that you would happen upon some wrinkle of of their personality? And you're like, Oh, interesting. Aha. And then you would go back and like re-edit the, like the master file, basically (laughs) like, okay, now that I thought about this, now I realize, you know, Lena is actually X, Y, and Z and not A, B, and C.
1: Absolutely. Right. They, they, change all sorts of iterations Mm. um change and i think there's a tremendous amount of flexibility that's required as you're working on a novel if you're closed to who these people can be and how they can shift and adapt um i think the writing is going to start to feel pretty stale pretty quickly um some of the complexities i think are embracing contradictions right and instead of trying to smooth out those contradictions i think it's about trying to trying to embrace them um and i yeah i think that that's what keeps it interesting
0: amazing okay my next question also did not ask you uh beforehand to prepare this list do you have a must read list of like five novels that any high school student who is interested in writing or interested in literature like these are like Mount Rushmore style. You you got to read these five. You got to. Like no matter what the curriculum is, carve out time during the summer. Even if you're 35 and you haven't read them, go back. You got to read these five.
1: Oh, goodness. I mean, I think I would answer that question differently depending on the audience. So if I'm talking to a high school student, uh, if I'm talking to someone who's interested in being a writer, um... It depend. It depends, sort of on. Let your me give interest. you the audience. Let me give you sure. the
0: audience. Okay, so, um, fifteen year old Egyptian American girl living in uh Phoenix right now.
1: Okay, great. Um, and does she want to be a writer?
0: She loves literature. That's she knows that okay. much.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, so I think it would be important for. I mean, one thing I wish I had seen more growing up was like more of my myself, right? Like a, more of myself in literature. And I'm lucky that I have parents who love to read, who would, were always passing books down to me. But in school, I certainly never saw any Arabs or Muslims in the books that we were asked to read. Um, I would probably have her read some Afdaf Suif, the Egyptian writer who writes primarily in English, Um, I remember I discovered her when I was in high school, um, and it was so thrilling for me, um, to read her work. Um, so that's probably- Is there a title that she
0: has that you're like, start with this?
1: Probably Map of Love. It's a big one though. Um, it's a big one, but probably that one. Cool. Um, I would give her- the poems of Sulmaz Sharif, who is an Iranian-American poet, um, who I had sort of a similar reaction to. I was older when I encountered her work. Um, I think a high school student might be a little intimidated, but I think um, sometimes high school students need to be encouraged not to be afraid of poetry. Um, And her work in terms of a writer who's thinking about post-9-11, like the ways that 9-11 has shifted literature, in america i think her work's really important um i would put some baldwin in there um so james baldwin um audrey lord who i think of as a sort of patron saint um whenever i need to be challenged and and i need to push myself um i i, I return to her um and i love i love giving her to young people um let me think. So okay, so we've got Ahdaf Saeed, we've got Silma Sharif, we've got James Baldwin, we've got Audre Lorde, and I need one more. Mm. I'm going to say Jasmine Ward, um, who is a contemporary uh, writer. She's written a few novels. She does such a terrific job at writing teenage girls. And I think a teenage girl in mm. this country, no matter what your background, right, um, could really feel um, like the interiority of her teenage girl characters is just, I think, unparalleled.
0: Is there something like special about writing, um, I, like teenage characters? Is there something in particular that's hard but also gratifying about it?
1: I think so. I think, um, you know, there's a reason why there's this whole genre of coming of age. I think teenagers are. I mean, I'm a high school teacher, so clearly I love teenagers. Um, But I think that they have done all this work. They're in the process of doing so much work to figure themselves out. And girls in particular, I find weaver between these two extremes. On the one hand, I think teenage girls sort of hurl their emotions about. They throw their emotions out into the world and they hope (laughs) that someone will catch it and love them, right? And then sometimes the world doesn't. So then they go inward, they withdraw, right? And those two extremes I think are really interesting to me, the ways that girls sort of like test things out in the world, um, step out, right, and take a risk. And then when they're hurt or wounded or afraid, um, withdraw. And one of the things I love about girls too um, is the relationships they can form with each other. um, When they need to withdraw, I think that they can often withdraw um, with each other right? And sort of like figure things out, um, in relationship with one another.
0: Yeah. Are you totally, totally pooped and can't imagine writing another novel or you're like, oops, and like, oh, I can't wait. Like, give me another at bat.
1: It's more, I can't wait, to be honest. I, I have a serious problem of time that I need to figure out like when, mm-hmm. when is this is going to happen. But, um, because I worked on Between Two Moons for so long and I really found it very difficult to write anything else. There's a really one time that I took a break and wrote some stories that were unrelated, but basically for 11 years and even more, right? If I'm thinking about the time, um, the two years when I got a book deal and was working on edits and such, um, I have only been thinking about this world and these characters. And that's been extremely gratifying and I have a lot of love and affection for them. But I'm also as a writer and intellectual, I'm really excited about a new, the idea of a new project.
0: Very cool. Um, Okay. I want to switch to our quick Q&A before we wrap up. So what are you reading these days?
1: Right now, I always have very ambitious summer goals as a, as a teacher, right? I'm like, I'm going to read 500 books that have nothing to do with school. Um, but I'll tell you, what I'm reading right now is the novel Enter Ghost by Isabella Hamad. It's about um, a theater troupe putting on, trying to put on a production of Hamlet in the West Bank. It's very good.
0: Amazing. Isabella, a friend of the program.
1: Oh, great.
0: Yeah, we had her on. Uh, to discuss the Parisian. Another Uh, great book. Another great book. Okay, cool. Um, Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present?
1: You know, this would probably, my answer would change, but right now I kind of have a little bit of an obsession with... um, Egyptian singers and actresses of the past and actually from a inspired by a book called Midnight in Cairo and you also did an interview yeah, um,
0: Raphael.
1: with Raphael um Cormac the author of that book so I think I would shadow Munira Mathia um cool. who just uh, I kind of have a major crush on. I think she seemed really amazing and interesting and I would love to follow her for a day.
0: Yeah Here's a if you if you couldn't be a teacher or a writer, is there like a third profession you have in your back pocket that you're like, oh, I totally would do this?
1: No. I think about this all the time. Like, um if like the civilization collapses, like what skills do I have to offer? Um, I don't know. Maybe I, I would be a gardener and I would try to work <laughs> with the land and the soil. That's
0: you're like non essential worker, you're, you're reporting for duty.
1: I have I can tell stories to the children. Um I have I have no practical skills.
0: It's so funny. Um what do you think people most misunderstand about your work?
1: My work is so like newly out there that I'm not 100% sure yet, but one thing I I fear the misunderstanding of is um, that people will read this especially a story that focuses on Muslim women um, as a story about Muslim women uh struggling with the oppressive Arab culture or the oppressive Arab uh, Muslim religion or trying to liberate themselves from Islam and that for me my characters actually uh find a sense of safety um and a deep sense of of love within their faith and so that's probably um the biggest misunderstanding that I the, the misunderstanding that I am most sensitive to
0: mm-hmm. yeah do you care if people like your work
1: of course i think i would be lying i would be lying if i said i didn't i think sometimes it's really healthy to take a step back um and i find it really i really like the process of writing when no one else has seen anything and trying to keep actually an audience out of my mind for as long as i can Uh, but now that it's out there like i don't think i care if everyone likes it um but i i do um i think i'm okay with that right i think i'm actually i'm fine um if if my work just sort of rubs some people the wrong way um but i would definitely i think i would be lying if i said i didn't hope there were some people out there who felt connected to it
0: yeah i dare ask <laughs> who exactly do you want to dislike work i feel like there's a specific list of people <laughs>
1: I mean, I don't know, like if you're like a um go back to your country right like um type of American um yeah. feel free not to like my work that's fine um you know, um or someone who's sort of indulging in a narrative of uh white male victimization, right, which is a really strong current in the United States right now that what that white men are, are um, victims of tremendous oppression. You may not love my work and that's okay.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool, let's do the last one. Outside of your profession, whose work inspires you? And by inspires you, I don't mean like um, uh, impresses you. I mean like actually encourages you. Like which outside of your profession Whose work you like? Ooh, oh, I got to start writing. Oh, I have an idea.
1: I really uh, love the work of the visual artist Helen Zugabe. She's based yeah. in um, DC um and whenever I look at her work, I I think I always feel inspired or or energized. Um yeah, I would say Helen Zugabe. I love her work. Yeah. Yeah, she's so, a beautiful artist.
0: Absolutely. Um, cool. Well, if anyone's interested in uh, finding your uh, book, it's really easy. It's available everywhere. And if they're interested in contacting you, you can be found online pretty easily. Um, the web sh- website is your full name, Aisha, A-I-S-H-A-A-B-D-E-L-G-A-W-A-D. And it's very easy to find. Uh, Aisha, thanks so much. This was so fun.
1: Thank you. It was such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me on.
0: Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcast and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to slash support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.